Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. I'm assuming that many of our listeners to this podcast are actually quite familiar with the name Aaron Schwartz. Aaron, a true child prodigy of the computer world, uh, helped to mold the RSS standards as a kid, uh, and I very much mean as a kid, and he went on to help co-found Creative Commons and a variety of other projects as well. Uh, He, along with Kevin Paulson, created SecureDrop, the system now used by many news outlets to accept confidential documents from whistleblowers. But of course, he's also uh, famously known for being arrested and prosecuted aggressively under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for downloading a large number of academic research papers from the JSTOR service and eventually, tragically, committing suicide in 2013 when he was only 26 years old. We've written about him many times on TechDirt and have talked about him here on this podcast, mainly in our episode about the CFAA. As I've said in the past, I also knew Aaron um, not all that well, but we lived in similar worlds and we had many friends in common. We emailed occasionally. Uh, I first met him when he was still quite young at the O'Reilly Emerging Tech Conference way back in 2002, um, when he was just a kid. He was there to launch Creative Commons with Larry Lessig, and I was there to give one of my very first public speeches, which was uh, terrible, whereas the Creative Commons launch was actually quite fantastic. and I should also mention, uh, I guess, in the, the, uh, for full disclosure, that I currently serve on the board of directors of Demand Progress, which is an activist organization that Aaron founded. Um, however, if there's one thing that I've noticed among conversations about Aaron's life and his legacy is that for those who didn't know him or who didn't really inhabit the worlds of open internet evangelism or who weren't deeply engaged in the copyright battles of the 2000s, it's been somewhat difficult to explain just what made Aaron tick. To me and many others, it feels fairly obvious, but clearly from the way that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts reacted to him and the way I've seen some people act following Aaron's unfortunate Uh, death. Many people don't really get it at all. And that's why I was so excited and pleased to read a new book by Justin Peters called The Idealists, which stemmed originally from an article that he wrote about Aaron, but which turned into this much longer book. It isn't just a biography of Aaron, but more of a contextualization of key aspects of the fight around copyright, open access, and an open internet. It does such, uh, frankly, it does such an amazing job putting what Aaron did and what he meant into context in a way that was likely impossible for those of us who actually lived (laughs) much of it, that I really wanted to have the author, Justin, come on the podcast to talk about it. Um, We're actually going to turn this into two podcasts with Justin, 
more or less reflecting the breakdown of the book itself. The first half isn't even about Aaron. Um, so this first episode won't really be about him either, even as I just spoke about him for a while in the intro, but rather a look at some of the individuals and driving forces uh, and history, honestly, behind key aspects of copyright law that would come to define Aaron's life. This is the context, and Justin does such a wonderful job of laying it out in the book that I really wanted to talk about it here as well. So uh, welcome, Justin. Uh, thank you for joining us here. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. Uh, great. So what, just to start out, I mean, what drove you to write this book in the first place? Um, so I'll give you a short answer and a long answer. The right. short answer is that um, a publisher reached out to me and asked me if I would want to uh, turn my article into a book. That's always that was, helpful. <laughs> yeah, that always helps, right? That was literally like the day after my initial slate piece ran. And I read the email and I'm like, it's not supposed to be this easy. You know? <laughs> um, so if, if an actual publisher was offering me an easy uh, opportunity to write a book, great, uh, I'm down. But more than that, i like I've had people reach out to me asking me to write books before, and they've all been on subjects that have just been stupid that I'm not actually <laughs> interested in, right? Um, and like this, like Aaron's story and Aaron's broader story uh, was something I was tremendously interested in. Um, my piece for Slate was about 15,000 words. Um, I started writing it three days after he died, and I published it uh, three and a half weeks later. So in the span of... Uh, under a month, um, I went through his entire life, and I didn't know him at all. I didn't know that much about him before I started writing the story. Um, but in the process of researching who he was and what he had done and talking to pretty much everyone I could reach uh, who had, uh, you know, impacted his life from, you know, his girlfriend to his uh, eighth-grade gym teacher, um, who who actually uh, um, emailed me afterwards and requested that his uh, interview go off the record. So huh. <laughs> it was very sensitive stuff. Yeah, it was weird. Um, but uh, I, I came to realize that like the story I had written about Aaron Swartz, right, was just the beginning, the broader story of Aaron Swartz, that uh, the story of his life wasn't just the story of how his life ended, mm -hmm. you know. And in order to actually tell the story of his life, what he did, what he was interested in, why that was important, to the broad audience that um, he had started to reach with the sort of like um, SOPA and PIPA um, activism in 2012 or so. I needed to really um, put his story in the broader context of basically just what free culture was and what it wasn't. And in order to do that, I started asking myself, well, I started asking myself some basic questions. And the most basic among those is, how do we get to the point where um, in this country, academic research is, uh, the fruits of academic research are considered private property, you know, no different than like a blockbuster movie or a mystery novel. Mm -hmm. And how do we get to the point where accessing that material without explicit authorization was considered a federal crime? Um, and in researching that answer, it took me all the way back to the genesis of copyright in this country and where those laws came from. And once I realized, my God, the story goes back <laughs> 200 to 300 years, right? Then I started getting excited. I'm like, okay, this is a book that I'm willing to spend the next three years on. Yeah, yeah. And it's, as I said, I mean, it's it's really great. And, and, and you know, I'll be honest, I, you know, I've 
written about and studied copyright law and copyright issues and copyright history, frankly, for, for you know, almost two decades. And there was a whole bunch in this book that I, I had never heard about before and, and didn't know at all. And it was, you know, it was just, I mean, it was really, really enlightening in a lot of ways. And, and so I, I really appreciated that. Um, you know, one of the, the first characters, I guess, sort of the main first character in, in the book is Noah Webster. Right. And so, you know, I think a lot of people recognize the name, but I'll be honest, I had no idea um, sort of his central role in in creating copyright law in, in the U.S. So do you want to talk a little bit, yeah, a little bit about uh, his history? So they called him the father of copyright in America. And when I, when I say they, I mean, Noah Webster liked to call himself the father <laughs> of copyright in America. Um, Webster was a tremendously ambitious guy. Um, he was sort of in his 20s when the Revolutionary War ended. Uh, he had been at Yale um, while the war was going on. And as sort of the war concluded and it became clear, okay, now we have this new nation. Uh, Webster, who always sort of like thought of himself as someone who was bound for glory or greatness, you know, he would be very upset that he was not on Mount Rushmore. You know, like <laughs> he always saw himself in like that pantheon. Right? Oh my he God. realized that like he hadn't like fought on the battlefields to sh secure America's uh, political independence, but he wanted to win his name in the battle for cultural independence. Huh. Um, he, he was a school teacher. Uh, he didn't want to be. He wanted to go to law school, but his dad uh, lost all his money uh, in the war, and there was no money for that. So instead of pursuing his studies, he opened a series of schools uh, for the children of rich people. And the standard instructional text at the time was this book called A New Guide to the English Tongue, this terrifically boring you know, book written by this British schoolmaster named Thomas Dilworth. Uh, and Webster, after teaching from this book for a while, uh, asked himself, wait a minute, why are we teaching, you know, American children to read and write and effectively think with this text that is filled with sort of material that glorifies the uh, empire that we just freed ourselves from? You know, there were pages and pages of this book that was just devoted to the proper pronunciation of the names of, you know, Welsh and Irish towns. <laughs> and uh, Webster was like, listen, we need an American uh, textbook here um, that sort of teaches an American tongue. So um, no one else knew what he was talking about uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or really cared. But he was like, right. well, you know, screw you guys. I'll write this thing and you'll see how great it was. And he did. And it was. It was a very good, like, textbook. Um, but in order for it to become ubiquitous in America and have the sort of effect he wanted it to have, um, he needed to be able to put it under copyright. Mm. And that was a problem because there was no federal copyright law at the time. This is in the brief interregnum between the colonial era and the uh, constitutional era where the nation was governed by the Articles of Confederation. And there was basically no federal government at all. So what happened if you were an author at you know, that time was that you publish your book in Connecticut, for example, where, you know, Webster was, and then watch in dismay with no recourse as, you know, printers in uh, Virginia and Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania and wherever, you know, took that book and issued their own sort of unauthorized editions of it. And, you know, copies degrade sort of over time. Uh, so, like, they would inevitably introduce errors and stuff like that. So Webster was like, screw this. I'm going to go to every single um, state legislature 
in uh, this country and personally lobby to uh, pass uh, copyright statutes. And, and that's what he did. He took sort of 13 months to go around and, you know, knock on the doors of these sort of um, halls of legislation. And one by one, they're like, all right, guy, we don't, <laughs> we don't really care about this, but if you do so much, like, we'll pass your law. Um, and so... Yeah, he seemed, he seemed very persistent. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very nice way uh, to say it. Um, he was <laughs> he was one of the most loathed men of uh, his era. Um, yeah. Like there were there's there's parts in my book and uh, where I just I probably go overboard quoting just how much uh, <laughs> hated like Noah Webster. And it's really funny. I read pretty much every biography that was ever written of the man. And in a, basically half of those biographies, there's always a line where the biographer inserts himself. He's like, you know, um, <laughs> I need to just say. I came to really despise Noah Webster in the course <laughs> of um, researching his life. Wow. Um, yeah, so like then when the first Federal Copyright Act of 1790 was passed, um, you know, it was very much due to Webster's banging the drum of copyright in the you know, preceding years that led to that law. And then when the next revision was passed in 1831, it was again Webster who by then had you know, published his dictionary and had become mm-hmm. sort of internationally famous and was nearing the end of his life and said, you know, this um, initial 14-year copyright term with a 14-year renewal period that was provided by the copyright law of 1790 is insufficient to my needs. It's not long enough to provide for my family after my death. So he went around uh, to Congress and again sort of lobbied, you know, we need to sort of extend this law. My family needs to eat. I will not long for this world. <laughs> and they obliged him and they've basically been obliging um, yeah. writers ever since. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, uh, and I saw this throughout throughout the book, but it's start, certainly starting with Webster, was how much of like, you know, a bunch of the arguments that he was making and that were part of the discussion are so similar to the arguments that we hear today. And, you know, we think, you know, we live in this age and that these arguments are sort of new and unique, you know, and we talk about, you know, how the internet is different and all this kind of stuff. But then you look at the arguments, it's very similar. I mean, you know, a, a big part of, you know, Noah Webster was, was, and what he was arguing was this idea of, you know, copyright as property, you know, and is it property or is it, you know, is it something else? Is it a monopoly as, as, you know, some of the framers certainly, um, uh, believed it was. And so, you know, and, and just as a, a one sort of amusing side note, uh, that I, I noted down when reading the book was you talked about, you know, in the, in the dictionary, um, that he put out, which, you know, the famous Noah Webster dictionary, um, his definition of, of property, uh, basically gave him a chance to sort of editorialize <laughs> on the issue. But then, then you also noted that, that even some of that, uh, itself may have been plagiarized, which seems kind of ironic, you know, when you, when you think about someone who, who is claiming such ownership of ideas, um, yeah, it, it's crazy. There's very compelling evidence uh, that shows that like Webster's dictionary was just sort of an amalgamation of, you know, stuff he had taken from all of these other sort of uh, reference works. And, yeah. you know, again, like a lot of credit to the guy for actually going through and like compiling all this stuff. And he certainly like the bulk of the dictionary is like original work. Sure. But um, it's it's always funny, isn't it? Like yeah. the extent to which, you know. Uh, creators like to claim that 
um, a work of the mind is indistinguishable from like the work of one sort of like sweat and one's like hands, like a book is like different from a table. Well, I mean, like, you make the table, right? <laughs> right? Right? You like you're the one that's like nailing the legs into like the table. But a, a a work like a dictionary is like it's syncretic, right? You know, it's the combination of ideas that have sort of existed. Um, like who can who really creates like an idea? Right. And yeah, again, this was sort of the anti-copyright argument, you know, in Webster's time and going into the 19th century. And what I found really, really interesting, like researching the book, was that we have this sort of sense uh, right now in the 21st century that uh, Congress and sort of the judiciary has always been sort of in favor of the notion that intellectual property is property, full stop, right? That the uh, creator has a moral right basically to um, the fruits of, you know, her own sort of mind. Um, But that was that's a learned behavior right yeah. that's something that like in the 19th century there was a huge debate in congress where um they were you know trying to figure out well great we've got all this material that's circulating in south america we've got authors we've got readers um and we need to decide who are we trying to serve with the copyright laws that we're passing right is america best served by um, sort of promoting these extended copyright terms that serve perhaps as a production incentive and allow authors to profit from their works? Or are Americans better served by more condensed copyright terms that make it easier for information to circulate and the nation to become a nation of readers for, you know, the people in this desperately poor country um, to be able to access books that they might not otherwise be able to have and uh, sort of educate themselves. And this was a roiling debate that didn't really get settled until around 1891 or so. And it's super interesting to look at the history of how the rhetoric that characterizes today's sort of copyright uh, debate was really sort of put together over the course of the 1800s. Yeah, and and that was, I mean, and just again, you know, kind of an incredible part of the book to me was how much, you know, how much is that same debate? And it's funny because, um, I mean, a couple of years ago, I came across something similar in sort of, um, in you know, the related field of patents, where there were these battles in the 1800s also that, you know, instead of patent trolls, I think they were talking about, uh, oh gosh, I'm now I'm blanking on it, but I think it was like patent sharks, but it was like the same sort of thing, except, you know, it was some guy invented something that sort of kind of looked like common farm machinery and then went around the country, you know, threatening to sue every farmer he could find. <laughs> and you're like, wow, that's the exact same battle. And, and, but it was the, the same thing in this book. And, and you even, um, you know, at one point you refer to the 19th century as the golden age of free content, um, you know, which is which is kind of interesting when you think about it. And, and the big issue there a lot of times was the fact that, like, the U.S. did not respect or, or recognize respect is probably the wrong word, but did not recognize foreign copyrights. Right. And, and yeah, so you had like all these book publishers from the U.K. or, or authors from the U.K. whose works were then republished in the U.S. And that's basically how the American publishing industry came to be, right? Right. The reason we have a publishing industry today is because publishers were able to find their footing and establish themselves by taking uh, famous works from, you know, Great Britain, for which a market had already been made, Dickens, Sir Walter Scott, etc., right? Um, 
taking those manuscripts and reprinting them and distributing them throughout America for free, right? Yeah. There was absolutely no, um, like, a foreign author had no right to sort of copyright in the United States. And American publishers, like, exploited this and used it to build, like, their own businesses, uh, much to the uh, uh, dismay of the authors whose uh, work was yeah. being, uh, quote-unquote, pirated, right? There is this... I talk in the book about how Charles Dickens came to America yeah. on a lecture tour in 1841. And, you know, he was greeted like literally there were crowds greeting a ship as they came into port. And like everyone's like, hooray, our hero is here. <laughs> and he came in and he's like, listen, guys, this needs to stop. Right. <laughs> he was pissed for like four whole months. And eventually when he left, America was like, oh, please don't come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, right. But then like, like it eventually got to the point where um great now we have these established publishing houses and we have them because you know they had sort of published all of this sort of like freely available available material and once they became established they're like all right um now maybe we should have we should pass an international copyright law you know, to prevent uh competitors from coming in and undercutting us and throughout sort of the 1870s and 1880s, that's exactly what happened. The um, sort of um, price of the, the cost of book production dropped as um, the price of paper dropped and, you know, production technologies got better. Yeah. So like basically um, these uh, white shoe East Coast publishers uh, were constantly under siege with these startup cheap book publishers who would undercut the uh, established publishers by um, doing what the established publishers did themselves, like 40 years earlier, right? Taking these British works, selling them at absurdly low prices that were often cheaper than it cost the, uh, these publishers to produce them, right. right? And finally, these publishers were like, screw this, we need a law. So they went down to Washington and literally for a decade started uh, lobbying to pass an international copyright law. And they did it in such a way that, you know, would seem very, very familiar to <laughs> anyone who has paid attention to the um, sort of digital rights, you know, battles over the last 20 years, right? Started, like, advocating for, talking, started framing it as a matter of morality, yep. right? Started, like, they would actually convince uh, ministers to yeah. put pro-copyright messages into their Sunday sermons, right? Eventually, like, what they, they had convinced enough Americans that, um, you know what, you guys are getting a lot of utility out of these cheap books, but now you know it's wrong, 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 <laughs> wrong, wrong to get this stuff without paying, like, a premium for it. And, like, eventually, um, that argument took sway and in 1891 they passed a uh, international copyright act and basically what the um process of getting to that act was the formation of the copyright coalition that still sort of maintains today mm -hmm. right and the sort of um formation of the game plan that they still sort of um use today right frame it as a matter of sort of like morality um frame it as a question of author's rights, you know, yep. you know like make sure that uh, the public believes that their only sort of like um, interest in copyright is um, that their interest in copyright is the same as the author's interest in copyright, um, sort of uh, disdain the public domain. And it really began there. And it's just gotten worse since then. 
Yeah, yeah, more organized and worse. But but again, yeah, I mean, even you know, just reading the stuff about you know, you talked about pastors uh, jumping in, just like the way that they they sort of co-opt, you know, other other uh, organizations or other individuals to make it feel like a bigger thing, um, is re really incredible. Um, and then. Sort of the next battle after that was the the 1909 Copyright Act, which is sort of the beginning of modern copyright, I guess. Um, and even there, like again, the fight over that you talk about it was basically they, you know, it was, uh, you know, organized by a guy who had who had done a lot of stuff to make information more accessible, but almost everyone else involved seemed to come from industry and seemed to have a, a wholly singular viewpoint about what copyright law was supposed to be, right? Yeah, in, in, so it was very interesting, right? In the lead up to the 1891 International Copyright Act, it was pretty much all sort of like publishers of written works that had mm -hmm. agitated for that. Um, 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, uh, there are all these new sort of communicative technologies that had come around. Uh, so when um, the um, copyright industries got together um, in private to hammer out the details of what they wanted the 1909 law to be. There were publishers there, but there were also like uh, representatives of music publishers and, you know, lithograph men and um, directory publishers and all of these other um, sort of like groups. And the, whereas before, like, there was at least... Um, the uh, the copyright advocates at least claimed that they thought passing this um, copyright act would improve the quality of sort of culture in America. Uh, there was no such uh, illusion. Uh, you know, Fifteen <laughs> years later, they very much wanted to um, frame proper uh, intellectual property as property and uh, defiance of that as piracy right. and. Um, it was super like interesting to go into the transcripts there of both these sort of discussions and the uh, committee hearings in Congress where like they brought John Philip Sousa, the band leader. Down. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> Sousa, a, a hilarious guy. He really stole the show. Um, he got up like he claimed, um, you know what? Uh, these infernal talking machines, uh, they're ruining the development of music in America. We need to stop them or else... Uh, man is the the vocal cord is going to atrophy and disappear <laughs> like man's early tail. Um, <laughs> right, right. It's like what the hell are you talking? About? Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm still. I mean, I've I've read you know his his testimony. It's it's incredible and and crazy. I mean him and then also Mark Twain. Um, yeah. Though though the thing that amazes me about Twain is like if you read. Twain's testimony to Congress. I don't know if you did when you were researching did, yeah. this or not, but like, I I could make a strong argument that that it was satire. I mean, he's obviously you know like the great American satirist, and and reading some of what he talks about. I mean, he talks about basically how like his children are stupid and are going to starve if if they can't survive with on his on the money made from his writings. And he he, he was really going after the publishers in his um, testimony, like too. Like he was like, oh, like these publishers are going to um, you know take all the money. If there's this point, like right after. He finishes testifying where they're like, ha, 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 oh, Mark Twain, he's got to have his little joke. Uh, let's move on. Let's move right, on. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, it's crazy. And, and there was even like, I mean, you talked about like 
the um, you know the head of the music publishers association at one point talking about you know the importance of locking up pirates and putting yeah. them in jail and you know for longer and longer times and i'm like again this this sounds really familiar <laughs> this is it's, it just seems to repeat you know almost exactly what you know uh, what was happening 100 years later um so let's now let's sort of uh uh jump forward a bit um to the 1976 copyright act um which is the one that we now live under um and which was debated for you know almost 20 years before it actually you know went into a, into effect and, and went back and forth um and it turned out to be a very a, a massive change to to copyright law itself i mean you know i i still think a lot of people today don't realize you know, the, the shift that we went from the 1909 Act, which required people to register their work, otherwise it was automatically in the public domain, to the 1976 Act, where anything that is fixed is automatically under copyright. And, you know, some people even refer to it as the difference between an opt-in or an opt-out system. Totally. Yeah. Um, but even that, I think, is a little unfair, because technically, under the 1976 Act, there's, there's no legal way to opt out. <laughs> Everything <laughs> automatically gets a copyright. You can say you'll ignore it, and then it becomes a different issue but it's 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 really um quite incredible um and uh you know and, and so you know one of the things that um that you had in there were again just sort of the same sort of lobbying effort and the same sort of morality plays and and one of the and i, I marked down this one quote because it it really struck me um this guy from the american bar association which you would think would be a little more neutral <laughs> yeah. on the issue but it, yeah. he said uh, um, um, stated in our constitution itself is the fundamental public interest here to stimulate creativity and i don't think it stimulates creativity to tell people that they are welcome to copy what someone else has written and you're like uh have you looked at history at all and like how creativity works and like you know even earlier on this podcast we were talking about Noah Webster copied other people yeah. right that's that is actually the the starting point of all sorts of creativity and yes I mean there's there's obviously something in fact you know if somebody's just directly copying and doing nothing but copying that's not very creative but but you know almost all of human creativity starts from you know creating and then doing more with something um and so yeah there's there's yeah, There's sorry, this sorry. really sort of um, remarkable sequence, um, and I think this is where uh, that quote you just said came from. And by the way, when I when I saw that quote in sort of the transcripts, yeah. uh, I basically just like stood and like put my hands on my hips and I'm like, <laughs> huh, okay, like well, good for you for like like just saying it so nakedly, like, <laughs> right. like, like that's right, like I, I got to respect that, like to a certain extent, sure. Um, but yeah, it's like there's this sequence where like um, person after person uh, from you know, the American Bar Association and other sort of like industry groups just goes on and sort of like talks about how little use the, they have for the public domain, right? right? And how sort of like worthless it is and how public domain basically just means that nobody sort of cares about it anymore that it's just the the work is in the equivalent of a garbage strewn vacant lot where people are just going by and like spitting on it and fucking sneezing on it and like stuff like that right, <laughs> right. um and um <laughs> there's um it was really sort of remarkable to see um the unanimity 
in these uh, these copyright hearings, right? There was basically yeah. one guy, uh, the Yale law professor Ralph Brown, who was even mildly sort of speaking up <laughs> for uh, the public interest. Every other person was, you know, very much in it for um, the interests of industry or the interest of the sort of uh, you know creators they represented. And like, and so so this is an interesting thing. Uh, one thing that I don't think many people sort of like realize is the extent to which uh, uh, copyright law and the people advocating for it have shifted from creators themselves to sort of middlemen, yeah. right? Uh, totally. You begin with, with Noah Webster, who was, you know, whatever you might say about his motivations. This was a guy who was himself, you know, you know, writing his own works, and he wanted to profit from them. Great. Uh, then in the 1890s or so, uh, the people advocating for um, the international copyright were, you know, authors and publishers, people who had direct relationships with the authors. By the time you get to 1976, you've got people who have never had sort of an artistic thought in their lives, right? right? Basically, just <laughs> lawyers who are in charge of these sort of like trade organizations who are the ones... Um, advocating for um, copyright terms. And their only interest is to protect the sort of like financial position of their masters. Yeah. Right? Um, and um, the sort of shift there uh, from actual sort of like artists being involved and in caring about copyright to their duly appointed representatives being the ones sort of uh, writing these laws is really critical if you want to understand how and why we got to the point right now where copyright is so far out of balance. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's a really good point and a, and a really interesting one. Um, it just kind of shows, yeah, a, a big shift in, in how this happened. Um, I, one other quote, and then I want to talk about one other thing real quick. I know we're sort of running out of time on this one, but um, the other quote that, that struck me was uh, um, that I, I took I took extra note of because, again, uh, it just sounded so familiar to what you hear today. And it's just so ridiculous that I can't believe that, you know, this argument just keeps coming up over and over again. And it's so stupid. Uh, and it's uh, uh, a former senator, um, Kenneth Keating. Keating, yeah. Yeah, who told told Congress, and, and this is 1965, it says, uh, the question arises, what will happen in the long run if author's income is cut down and down by increasing free uses by photocopy and information storage and retrieval. Will the authors continue writing? Will the publishers continue publishing if their markets are diluted, eroded, and eventually the profit motive and incentive completely destroyed? To pose this question is to answer it. You know, this is he's talking about the photocopier. That nobody's <laughs> going to write anymore because of the photocopier. And it's like, you know, that's the, the same thing. Everything that we see, the VCR, nobody's going to make movies anymore. The, you know, the, the VCR is going to be the, the Boston Strangler to the to Hollywood was the quote that the MPAA gave in, in 1984, you know, and you have, you know, the, the, um, you know, when, when the MP3 player first came, you know, on the scene, the RIAA sued because it was going to destroy the ability of musicians to make money and TiVo, you know, the, the DVR yeah. got sued. And of course, YouTube and all of these things over and over again. And the argument is always the same, you know, if this is allowed to continue, you know, it's going to disappear. Whereas, you know, 
the, the, again, the opposite is almost always true, where you see, you know, time and time again, that these technologies, they open up new worlds and enable, you know, people who otherwise couldn't do it before to suddenly have a chance to create and, and um, you know, and to take part. And, and often, though, it's because they can do that without having to go through those middlemen who are the ones who are representing, you know, these interests to Congress. It's, it's yeah. a really incredible statement. It's absolutely right. And it's interesting, right? Like, it, it does recur over and over again. Yeah. Every single time a new sort of like, uh, you know, cultural or communicative technology sort of like comes out, there's this sort of, uh, you know, shock, you know, or response from existing industry. They're like, oh my gosh, like, this is going to kill us. We need to legislate against it. And they eventually legislate against it. And then they're like, oh my God, thank you. We have saved culture in America. And then like something new comes on and they do the same dance yeah. and um, right. None of these sort of companies ever actually go away. Right. right? right. Like, they're always there. And like, it's, it really sort of like makes you just stop and like <laughs> think and makes you stop and super sad when you realize that like the same dumb arguments have been recurring and been, have been convincing legislators like of the same thing for the past hundred and like 25 years. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it's, uh, you yeah. would think at some point people would point back and say like, you know, uh, you know, all these, these doom and gloom predictions, like the opposite happened every time. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I've made this point over and over again, and I love it because it's, it's, it's such a clear one, which is, you know, the, you know, I mentioned the, the, um, Jack Valenti MPAA quote about um, the VCR is the Boston Strangler to the movie industry. He said that in 1984. In 1988, so four years later, home video revenue surpassed box office revenue. I mean, yeah. it took four years to prove the guy wrong, and 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 yet people still sort of assume that you know these technologies are, are going to um, you know uh, destroy industries or, or take away the incentive to create, and it's it's just crazy. And uh, you know, again, I mean, uh, the, this was this was. It, it's it's really good to see sort of the well it's also frightening and, and distressing to see <laughs> to see how often these arguments come up again and again um but um uh i think that that's going to be it for for this this half of the the podcast as i said we're, we're going to have justin come back again which obviously uh will be no secret to people listening we're about to record right after this <laughs> uh but we'll, we'll you know if you're listening to it you'll hear it next week we're going to discuss some other stuff in the book but 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 justin thanks so much for for this conversation um and and for writing the book obviously i think it was great um you know again for those of you listening if you haven't read it i totally recommend it it's called the idealists um and uh, a, a really good and interesting conversation and, and and thanks so much for joining us thanks mike